Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Cathy Thomas. Cathy Thomas grew up in southwest of England and Guernsey. She now lives in London. Her short fiction has appeared in publications including The Stinging Fly, Banshee, and Litro. She has an MA in playwriting and was selected for the 2014-2015 Jerwood Arvon Mentoring Scheme as a dramatist. Welcome to our shelves, Cathy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to begin by talking about your debut, Islanders, which is published by Virago next month. Now, this is a collection of linked stories covering a period of 20 years in the lives of a group of intertwined people on the island of Guernsey. And I have to say, I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, not only is the writing excellent, and you managed to inhabit an impressive number of different people, and they're all really quite different characters in what's also quite a, you know a, a nicely short book let's put it that way everyone likes <laughs> around about 200 pages I think um, but it's also I think a real masterclass in what a collection of linked stories can be like and should be like if they're done well um, sometimes I feel like the idea of a linked story collection is a bit of a you know it's just a kind of just a little bit of an edge to kind of you know try and make them kind of cohere together but because you've chosen Guernsey this particular island as your setting and you really have I think you showed very kind of cleverly throughout these stories that actually it is such a small island that these lives really are linked and they really do linger like the people everyone knows each other in a way that even if you're not best friends with somebody you've got some sort of history with them going back very much so yeah right I'd love to know what sort of you know what came first did you did you think you know I want to write a story about these people and is this the way to do it how did you sort of come up with the with the germ of the idea for this book it's a really good question so I, I suppose there are kind of two angles to it on the on the first hand as a as a reader I loved reading Link Connections and I love uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad. I love The Shore by Sarah Taylor and The Lucky Ones by Julianne Pacheco. Olive Kittredge does lots of novels and stories in Link Collections, which as a reader, I really enjoy. I think there's, I love that kind of magic of being able to join the dots. I think all the different kind of seeds that writers have set out and you're able to kind of work between yourselves as a reader and make those connections. I think it's a really rewarding reading experience, which makes it sound very sort of educational, but I I just really, really kind of enjoy it. Um, So on the one hand, that's something that I really take pleasure in. And then on the other hand, 
I think growing up in Guernsey, I, I kind of felt that, that it wasn't something, it wasn't a, the town liners I don't think have been hugely well represented on the page, I think until now. Interestingly, coincidentally, there's, um, there's a, a novel and stories is also coming out this year um, to show what a small place it is. Um, the, the author of that, Ben Hinshaw, uh, his dad was one of my teachers. So that's kind of gives you an in, in, insight <laughs> into, into what a small community it really is. I love it. I know, it's really lovely. Yeah, Guernsey, it's the setting of one of Victor Hugo's novels, The Toilers of the Sea, because he was exiled there. It's the setting of, um, the, there's a novel called The Book of Ebenezer Le Page. It's quite a sprawling mm. novel about the history of someone's whole life set on the island. And there's obviously the, the Guernsey Literary Potato Pipe Society, which is the very different um very different type of novel I think to, to the book that I've written but I was really interested in trying to bring some sort of sense of island life and that sort of small community um living on onto the page in a way that hopefully feels a bit more a bit more realistic and I know gritty is a word that I think has been used quite a lot in terms of describing the collection but I think I also mm-hmm. enjoy the reader I really enjoy those um, quite gritty realist uh, stories by writers like Colin Barrett or Thomas Morris or and so I was also sort of interested in approaching that but perhaps with a bit more of the a bit more of a female eye maybe because I think in the collection a lot more of the stories are weighted more towards female experience even though as you say Lucy and very kindly so I think there is hopefully a real range of characters in terms of ages and, and backgrounds and gender on the page as well. Yeah I love that point you make as well about um, as a reader you love being able to find those little points of connection in these story collections. And I think I'm exactly the same. I love that where, but I think it's those, those story collections, the linked ones that really work for me, they make you work a little bit for it. You know, it's, and it, they, and it's also something a little bit more than just saying this character appeared in this story. And now they're going to be the, you know, they're the main character in this story. And now they're the secondary character in this story. And when you can kind of pinpoint them in a much more, um, I suppose a clever way and make yourself sort of feel clever for noticing these things. Mm. I'm interested to know then as a as a writer, when you came to write these stories, were you doing a lot of sort of pre-mapping out in advance about where people would pop up again or crop up in other people's stories? Or how did I it think- how did it sort of come into being? How did it the evolution of it on the page? I think I probably should have done more planning. In hindsight, I do feel like I set myself a bit of a challenge, I think, particularly for a first book. So many characters and over such a stretch of time as well. Um, I So in terms of how I started it, initially, I didn't necessarily start out to think, oh, I really want to sit down and I really want to write a book about Guernsey. I just started writing some stories and I have been doing some writing for theatre which is also another area mm. you know I, I used to work in the theatre industry it's I've always been very interested in playwriting and I, I've done bits and pieces here and there um, and I had actually been working on a play about Guernsey as well which is partly why some of the characters sort of came from that and oh. I felt that that form wasn't working but I thought about using it in a different way and I do think that there is something in terms of theatre not exclusively you obviously get a lot of plays that are set you know all in one location over one night or things like that but you also do get plays that really span time across a character's life um, in quite an interesting way and so when I started writing the stories that became the collection I started with a couple of the stories um, so Daily Specials which is the one set in Fish, fish and Chip Shop that was that was kind of one of the first ones and then um, Good for a Laugh which uh, is the first uh, story in the collection as well those, those are some of the kind of early ones and there's a story that's set on Hen, Hen Night as well in Jersey one of the rival mm-hmm. islands uh, that kind of is, is the setting for one of the others as well um, and initially I was I was working on the stories and I think more about a sense of place as well as the characters rather than explicitly thinking I want these all to link up in this certain way and then when I started thinking about how could I make them linked in the way that I really enjoy linked collections um, I started thinking um, one point quite specifically about place could it be that they all take place in different geographic locations around the island and how could I make that linked which is to a degree 
how they span out like I think they all do take place um roughly in different sort of you know ones ones in St Peterport ones at the airport ones around us and beach and ones in different bays and things like that um but I was looking at that and then I was then at one point thinking could I make all of the different stories happen simultaneously as well so I was thinking was there one event and all the different stories happen at one time and actually then what I really realized was I think as a reader and maybe as a writer, I'm I'm really obsessed with the idea about whether people change. And I think actually having stories Mm. that show a group of characters over a long period of time was a way to explore that. And again, I think as a reader, that's something that I have really enjoyed in. I don't know if you've read The Shore by Sarah Taylor. It's a link link collection of stories, or I think it might be a novel in stories. It's one or the other, but it takes place, I think, over about 200 years. And it dots back and forth in time in a way that is really, it's really imaginative and it's really singular. I really love that when you're kind of piecing together and trying to work out, oh, so that's what happened, but also that made that impact on that person's life in that certain way. And so I was thinking about how to do that. And again, I mean, at the moment um, now, in in the form that Islanders currently is, the stories are in chronological order. At one point they weren't. So in terms of planning and mapping out, I think I should have done more. I think I set quite a hard task on myself and definitely, you know, characters, ages, locations, dates, all that kind of stuff changed as it went along. And there was quite a I did definitely, well, various, I've got a notebook here, there's various sort of charts in it that I had to keep track of ages and, you know, who was 17 in 2001 and what were they with, you know, all these different kinds of things. So I ended up, I think, creating more work after the fact, but I think perhaps if I had set out to write it in the form that it was at the beginning, that might not have felt quite so sort of exciting or organic, Mm. I suppose, in terms of the ideas that came out of it. Mm. Well, yeah, I think one of the things that I really loved about it was that sense you capture of time passing and of people changing and also of not changing and of like, you know, the idea that some people are sort of trapped in a certain destiny and others have sort of, you know, made changes for themselves. And, And there was a real, I don't know, some of the chapters, I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, you felt a real sort of, I don't know, I felt a real sort of emotional target for realizing that oh this is what that character's grown up to be like this is their adult life or you know these this I don't know it's anyway it's very moving I think it's beautifully written and I urge all our listeners to go out and uh, buy yourselves a copy when ready you. to order it in advance so there we are um right let's get on to our main questions now if we may Kathy first up I'm going to ask you to tell me about a book that you are currently reading or currently on your bedside table about to be read what have cool. you chosen um I've chosen We Were Young by Neve Campbell um I don't know if you've read it Lucy and I don't know if you read her first novel um this happy um i read the first one but i haven't read the second one yet so i want the rundown from you on it's what it's really, like i i absolutely loved it so I, I read this happy i think did that come out in 2020 which which um neve campbell's first novel which uh sort of flits back and forth in time between a woman i think in her late 20s who's um about to get engaged to someone working in doubling local politics and, and is in this kind of quite serious committed relationship and she has an encounter with someone that she had an affair with who's a married man in her youth and it's a very kind of claustrophobic um quite drab novel in Mm. in the best of way there's something that's almost feels quite sort of gray and green about it like drab being used as a positive is is a nice way (laughs) no no I like it yeah there's there's something very kind of not seedy but there's something that feels kind of quite quite grubby and a bit sad about the kind of setting of it but I think like Neve Campbell has handled it in a really deft way and in We Were Young it's in some ways it's sort of some similar themes but uh, but again a very different story and handled very differently it it follows Cormac who's a photographer in his late 30s he teaches at the university um and he is 
quite unsettled in his life and he's sort of having affairs with men and women and with people who are his students and, and there's a sort of sense of he's not he's not very anchored in what he's doing and I think what Neve Campbell is really brilliant at is, is that she's very precise at describing very ambiguous emotions and I think very uh, the, there's a real sort of gorgeous sense of empathy I think in her writing like you could take a character like Cormac that she's describing and you could perhaps take quite a judgmental eye in a certain way about the way he behaves around some of its characters and and that's not apparent at all in the book it's it's a really sort of generous sense of trying to understand this character who is hurting other people in lots of different ways and 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 there's a a, a content thread that um uh, there's a storyline in which follows uh, his older brother who's having a bit of a midlife crisis and, and is kind of treating his marriage with um, very little respect. And there's also there's also a line which follows the death of um, his other brother when he was young, which is the question. Um, actually, I won't reveal too much. No spoilers for me on this one. Um, but, but but it kind of it looks at family in a really knotty way and it looks at how individual relationships, what impact they have on other people and how um, however much you internalize something, if, if you're going to hurt someone, you're going to hurt someone. One. But at the same time, it's it's just handled in a really deft, um, yeah, really empathetic kind of approach. And I again, I won't give away anything, but I've just finished it actually. And the, the ending of it, there is such a such a switch foot, which I did not see coming in this really cleverly handled way. So much so that when you're reading it, you want to keep go back and read it. Be like, how, how did how did she do it? How did she make it work? Because it's 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 really really beautiful. So I'd really recommend it. Okay, it sounds like I have to go and read it now. I think I've got a proof or a copy knocking about somewhere, so I'll find that. It's quite a recent book. I'm interested to find out whether are you sort of as you ramp up to sort of publication, are you doing a lot of reading of other people's work that's being published around this time? Or how, what is your normal kind of reading? Uh, how does it sort of pan out? What do you pick kind of old books, new books? All over the place, which is not very helpful. No, no, that's, I think I, that's I was the best kind, I think, really. <laughs> I think I probably am quite influenced in terms of by, you know, by what's, I think if there's an author whose work I really love and have enjoyed other, other, other writing by them. So like I said, I really enjoyed this happy. So um, we were young was on my list. Mm -hmm. Likewise, I really loved Wendy Erskine's first collection of short stories. So I went out and bought a second as soon as it came out and the same um, uh, Louise Kennedy's novel, which is also another book that I've got next on the list. Cause again, I loved um, her first uh, short story collection. So I think I am led slightly by authors, but equally at the moment, I'm really, I'm, I must admit, I used to have a very monogamous approach to reading. I would read one book at a time and that would be the all that I'd read. And then now I seem to read all sorts of things at once. And I always have a novel and I always have some nonfiction on the go. So I'm, I'm quite a big fan of, um, sort of his, history writing, I suppose, and memoir as well. So there's normally at least one, at least one sort of history book, one novel, one maybe a short story collection and one something else on the go. But it does vary. And I'm, yeah, one of the other books I picked up at the moment is a, is a book by Malpasson. So it's a classic. So, so it, it really, really kind of varies, I think, between mood. And actually, I do think I am someone who... I, I really try and steer clear of books that perhaps are touching on themes of something that I'm interested in writing in case it sort of spooks me away from them. Um, so there's there's a bit by someone else at the moment, actually, which I'd love to read and is on the shelf, but I'm, I'm putting it aside for the time being until I finish what I'm doing. And do you find that when you're kind of really deep in writing that you try and steer clear even more of other fiction in case it infiltrates? I'm fascinated, always really fascinated to find out because some authors seem to be very strict about not reading other work while they're writing and other people seem to say no, the all the merrier you know all these influences come in but I, I definitely will read fiction I think because it shows you how it works is what I really mm -hmm. find like and I think it's but what I might do is I might read fiction that's on a different a different topic to an idea that I'm trying to explore or perhaps tonally is is, is different as well yeah. but I do find that I I can be quite um 
even when I, I remember when I was a teenager and I started writing and I was getting into writing, I'd, I'd read one novel by someone and then you desperately want to write in that style. And I, yeah. I really <laughs> do try and I am, I do try and be really cautious about not, not taking something that I think will have a real kind of influential effect. But I certainly think, um, yeah, I don't steer clear of fiction at all, but I, but I think more kind of certain topics or things, things like that, that I, I might steer clear of just because I, I think you always get that panic moment when you're writing something that, oh no, someone has already done this and they've done it better. And so I think anything <laughs> that might feel in that area, my sense yeah. is I think it's always better to try and get the writing done. And then at the end of it, you read it and then you read the piece of work and you're like, oh, that's, you know, then you can put it aside. But I think better to, you know, keep a slightly blinkered approach at times if it means finishing a project. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. Right. Next up, I think you're going to tell me about uh, an essay that you read that's made you think. What's this essay? Who's it by? Um, so there's a so the Stinging Fly, which is a brilliant um, literary journal based in Dublin. They recently ran a series of online events. I must admit, I didn't attend the events, um, but they were based on around the theme of resilience. Um, and they've published an essay by Olivia Fitzsimmons. Um, called Notes on Resilience, um, which is online, so it's free for anyone to read, um, which is a, a write-up, essentially, of some of her thoughts I believe she delivered in the talk. And I would recommend anyone read it, really. It's a really, really generous, empathetic essay. And it is about rejection, on the one hand. It's very much about rejection as a writer and, and how do you how do you cope with that? Because it is really baked into the process, whether you've got a book out or you've had five books out or you're still at the start or you're trying to get your first story published, there will be rejection at every single step of the way. And, and she kind of talks about this in a really, really wonderful very open um, quite sort of heart on her sleeves kind of way but I think in, in a way that I think will bring comfort to quite a lot of people certainly I found it did and at the same time <laughs> she also talks about parenthood um, and she talks about her experience of being a mother and which I can't speak to I don't have children but but certainly I think what is really brilliant in the essay she talks about the simultaneous experiences that you have where you can have one thing happening on your life and at the other time at the same time you can have something that is kind of burbling away in the back of your mind or, or, or and, and how do you match up these different experiences that are happening and I think specifically she's she's talking about um talking about parenting she's talking about her son one of her son's experiences with reading and how she's trying to kind of progress that and, and some comments she's had from the school and also the, the essay is so wonderful because also at the end of the essay there's a footnote when she talks about having spoken to her son about the essay and then going back and, and talking about the process of writing and talking about writing and how do you talk about involving other people in your writing and and, and she kind of she writes that 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 as a footnote to the end of the essay and I think we all go through different periods of rejection or whether it's in you know your career in terms of you know day jobs is obviously the famous phrase associated with writers whether it's <laughs> with writing or creative practice or romance or friendship or family or whatever it is and I think there's just something that is really kind of heartening and, and very open I think in, in the essay and I, I certainly I, I found it a really kind of encouraging encouraging read and, and I think certainly writers I think rejection is something that people talk about all the time and I think the more that you kind of read about it it's always a good a good moment to reset and to get a sense of oh this is something that everyone has and you just have to pick yourself up and, and, and get on with the next thing that you're doing. It's such a strange thing, isn't it? Because you're right, there's so many, if you are a writer or if you, you know, most, you'll have experienced quite a lot of rejection at various points, unless you're, inc you know, incredibly and hugely lucky on in a level that only, you know, a couple of writers are. Yet it still seems like a sort of slightly taboo subject that people don't really talk about it that much. They don't talk about, and you don't learn about the behind every successful kind of sto story that's published, article that's published, uh, you know, novel that's written. There's so much rejection sort of holding that up, as it were. And it's interesting then when people, open themselves up and write something that's quite intimate in this way 
I think so. There's, I would actually really recommend as well. There's a great um, podcast with a journalist, Hattie Crisell, and she does a podcast called In Writing. And there's a, re- and it's very much about the nuts and bolts of writing. A lot of the time, it's about like, you know, what was this first draft, and what happened, and what happened when you went on submission, and how did this work? Mm-hmm. But there's a really great episode with Anna Hope, the novelist, and very specifically about rejection and her first novel going on submission and it not getting taken up, which is a really common. It's a really common thing. It happens, and, and even if you end up getting a book deal baked into that, will be rejections. And and I, I think it's a really interesting thing that people don't talk about and I think it's because rejection is hard like I think you know yes. rejection, even if it's something that I don't know you kind of think it was a throwaway thing you just sent something off for a submission I, I think it always stings but equally you're the only person really that can kind of move yourself on and press send on the next email or do the next thing so but I think mm. talking about it and the more that you can talk about it or talk to friends about it is a great thing I'm very lucky I have a wonderful wonderful writers group um and we share all of our rejections as well as, oh, well as really our I mean, okay. it's so great and it's a really I don't know there's something about marking it I think as well that also helps so it doesn't feel like this sort of shameful, dirty secret that you got rejected. Because I think part of the thing about rejection is you always have this paranoia of, you know, oh, I've humiliated myself. I've been blacklisted in some way. I don't know. And there's something about sharing it with other people that, that really just takes the edge off and you sort of see it for what it is. And I think that's 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 also something that I'd really recommend. So if you're going through it, whatever it is with, just share it with people. I think it, it's, it's a cliche, but I think talking to people about it makes such a difference. It will make you realise it's just an email. And I think that's the thing as well that, um, in this essay there's a real sense of the initial pain of seeing something that that you know is a rejection of something that you really wanted and then going back when it stings a bit less rereading it again oh there's something I can take from it and there won't always be but I think again yeah being able to share that and talk about it is, is really helpful so definitely definitely I would recommend this this essay to, to anyone whether you're you know have creative pursuits or not I think it's a really really beautiful piece of writing we've all had rejections we all need to yeah <laughs> Yeah, not to hide them away as little dirty, shameful secrets. (laughs) Our shells be back in just a moment. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Skull. I'm talking to Kathy Thomas about rejection, the pain of it, but also how it's sometimes easier when it's shared and talked about. Next up, Kathy, could you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Yeah, I wanted to talk about Annie Ano, um, specifically a girl's story. I've been reading my way through her work. I haven't read my way through all of it. There's so much of it. That's the kind of joy, right? With her. There's just so much of it. She's wonderfully prolific. I, yeah, I, I don't know how she does it. And I think that's one of the things reading her books. Um, every book, I think as well, although thematically and in terms of style, there might be something that's different. I think you can learn a lot from whichever one that you pick up. Mm. Um, and the one specifically that I that really resonated with me um, was a girl's story and I mean I, I think you could pick up lots of different books of, by her particularly I think happening is probably very very um, current in terms of topic at the moment around sort of conversations around um, abortion laws I think I think mm. happening would be a really brilliant book for anyone to pick up and read if you're not familiar with her work it's quite difficult to stomach it's about her experience of trying to procure a, a backstreet abortion in France when they were still illegal but it's 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 it's, it's a really what's the what's the word I was going to say interesting and that's a really trite word I think to use in this context it's quite a challenging it's quite a challenging read but I think it's really insightful and really eye-opening and a girl's story by contrast it's another work of memoirs so if you don't know Annie I know's work she she it's, it's predominantly non-fiction it's sort of creative non-fiction and she has written a novel as well which I must admit I haven't read but a girl's story looks back on her time when she was 18 and I think it was 1958 and she went off to work in a, a summer camp sort of a, a kid's summer school basically as, as a teaching assistant and it was her first time away from home away from her parents away from what sounded like quite a kind of cloistered upbringing mm. and she experiences a a really problematic sexual experience within her first few days of being at the site and what the book does is she talks about the process of how she tries to write about the subject and what she thinks about that now and her framework now for understanding was that sexual assault was it something that I consented to or not and at the same time she really tries to place herself in the shoes of what she was like when she was 17 or 18 and what she thought about was happening at the time and her experiences of that. I think there's something really, really generous in the way that she frames the story looking back on what's happened to her. Because I think often when we're talking about when we're talking about feminism, I think often you feel like you have to hold yourself to a really high standard. I think particularly in in in, in a culture where you know online discourse is so quick to jump on anything, I think when there's quite a council culture is quite prevalent. I think you often feel like you have to have quite a spotless record or something to kind of be able to talk about something in a certain way. And I think what Annie Ano does in this book that's really wonderful is she talks about bad things happening to herself and but also kind of how her own opinions of what she thinks is right or wrong or own opinions of her self-esteem or confidence and how that has changed over time and I think it really acknowledges the fact that as people yeah how we behave and what and what we perceive as having happened to us or how we perceive our actions that does change over time with experience and 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 what we might think looking back on something might be completely different to how we perceived it at the time and there's yeah there's there's a real sense of redemption I, I think in her work and something really important about taking ownership over experiences and feeling empowered enough to go back and re-examine them and to kind of call them by their name as well so it's it's, it's a really powerful read I think and again also it's a very it's a very short read so you can sit down and you can read it in an afternoon I'd recommend that anyone would um but it's really atmospheric and I found it really it's quite an emotional book to kind of read and and there's something that is very optimistic in it because I think the nature of someone looking back on something and talking Mm -hmm. about 
you know, herself when she, a few years older, when she's off, she goes to London and then she goes to university and then she starts talking about her early writing career. So you see a way out for the young Annie. I know that you really want her to have. And I think there's something in that that is really wonderful. There's something particularly intriguing for me about what she does in, in so many of her work. I haven't read all of her books, but like you, I've read quite a few now. I mean, there's just so many and, and Fitzgerald <laughs> keep bringing them out. So, you know, there's always, always a new one to read. But I'm always really fascinated and also impressed by the way that she seems to be able to draw a very interesting distinction. I think that you were getting at just then about the sort of the young Annie Erno, the woman she, or the girl she was and the kind of woman she is now and her ability to be both, you're right, sympathetic or sort of empathetic towards herself but also she never lets herself off it's not as if she's she's very candid she's very like she's she has no problem writing about the sort of most intimate things in her life but she's very good at kind of creating a sort of level of distance between them and being able to make assessments and judgments and with a very clear-sighted way that I think you can tell that she's really thinking these things through while she's writing as well she seems to be kind of there's a sort of ongoing or for me I always feel like there's sort of an ongoing process that she's working through in these books I don't know if you get that I sense think so well. and I th- have you read this one Lucy have you read A Girl's Story? Yes I remember yeah this one and Happening um, and I think The Years as well the, yeah. those are the three I've read. Simple Passion I'd, I'd also really recommend as well um, oh, and I think I read another one there was one about her father which was that I don't know that was... I do I do know the one I do know the one you mean because I was looking it up on my list of for, for the books by her to add to my to, to be read file got a collection of her down here I don't know anyway and and another one that I've read which is about her dad which is very good (laughs) yeah no but I completely agree and I think very much in a girl's story she's really she's it does feel like she's working it through as she's writing and and she talks a lot about how she at times trying to write this story of what happened to her um, at different stages in her life and couldn't and that's one of the most fascinating things isn't it that is a story that's taken a really long time for her to get to and you get the sense that if she'd written it at any different point in her life it would have been different yeah sort of every time she wrote it it would be a different not a different version of events but the story as she puts it together in this book would be a different story right I think so I think so and I think that's what's really I think I suppose particularly in the framework we're kind of talking about telling stories and, and, and fiction and, and non-fiction and literature and, and I think within that framework it's a girl's story is a really brilliant example of the consideration I think that goes into writing and at what moment you know she even goes into the detail of talking about at which moment she wanted to start telling the story should it start here or should it start here and I think there's such precision in her writing and it all really um underlines the way in which she's really trying to take ownership over what's happened and how she perceives what's happened to her and, and how she sees that that sense of what happened and her sense of self has really kind of changed over time and I think yeah it's really it's really powerful and I think it really sort of shows shows what you can do with with good mm-hmm. writing and I think and I, I think as well it's the kind of book that I think will I think it will just resonate with with a with a lot of women and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure a lot of men as well but I, I think particularly yeah it, it feels really it just it just feels very powerful I think and I it, it really does that thing about taking the specific and making it feel universal I think I feel like mm-hmm. there are lots mm-hmm. lots of you know lots of women I know I, I feel like everyone has different stories and I, I, I think the way in which that Anya know has kind of written this you, you can kind of see how different experiences can can kind of map alongside that I think yeah and she's so precise her writing is so precise and concise as well that she she manages I mean I'm always impressed that she writes these very slim books that have mm. that manage to pack so much into them and the impact the power of it like you're talking about is so 
um, it really sort of hits you. But at the same time, they are these little slim things that you can just digest in an afternoon. Yeah, they're quite like like cool. Well, cool in terms of she is very cool. She's a very cool woman. But I think they're quite cool in terms of like tone as well. For something that is talking about incredibly overly emotional, you know, subject matter, she's actually very kind of calm and precise and measured and there is something which again perhaps points to the fact that she decided to tell this story at a certain point of time as I'm sure she's mm. done with all, all of her other writings but yeah there is there is something that is very they're so clear-eyed right they're just kind of she just sees things and she sees things and she she managed to she manages to kind of get that across in the writing so precisely that you sort of never doubt for a second what you're reading you never or you don't question it you're just kind of there for the for the ride with the beautiful writing definitely definitely um and finally today moving on to our last question tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire yeah, I've decided to talk about Carol Churchill, um, who probably doesn't need me to put her on a pedestal. Um, I think perhaps coming from a bit of a theatre background, uh, you know, she's she's very much someone that is talked about and known and loved in those kind of um, circumstances. But I thought perhaps um, in a context, it might be something that listeners uh, listeners might not know her work so well. And she, yeah, I'm wondering if she is so well known today. I mean, like you say, she's very famous on one level. But I was suddenly thinking, I haven't. I mean, I read I read her play Top Girls and saw it when I was at university but yeah. I, suddenly, I don't think I've really come across her that often since then so she's great okay I need to I need to see more of her work clearly so this is the thing I think with Carol Churchill so she was born in 1938 and she's in her 80s now and she's still writing she had a play that was on at the Royal Court I think was it um, a year or two years ago I must have met with Covid in the hiatus in the theatre industry that has kind of happened I think it's about two years ago um and the thing about Carol Churchill is and her first sort of play I think her first play was staged in I think it was 1972 and then plays like Top Girl and Fen and some of those kind of big big hitters that you know about they were sort of staged in the early 80s um so she's kind of risen to prominence um from those but what I think is really exciting about her work is every play really is very different from each other so Top Girls okay. and I, I could talk about Top Girls we, we could talk about that quite a lot I think um you know it's, it's 40 years old I think this year 40 years old 40 years old yeah and it will be won't it it God. is like I think Top Girls is still as relevant today as it was when it was written so we, we could talk about that at the end of it but I think um Top Girls is a play for those of you who don't know it, it is sometimes on the sort of A level English or drama um curriculum in schools and it is the kind of quite a classic university play you know there were productions of it when I was at university um and it is one of her plays that probably gets revived more than more than others and Top Girls um looks really at capitalism and the female experience and sort of que- the question really of like can you have it all can you be can you be a mother and can you have a career it kind of still look, look looks at those questions really and um, it has a very famous opening scene which features lots of women from history who are at a dinner party and it's very stylized in a in a very kind of specific way and it's often um productions often do it in a very certain way as well but the meat of the play really is is about um two sisters Joyce and Marlene and um uh, Marlene runs a recruitment agency specifically for women it's all about it's kind of Thatcherite Britain and it's it's um yeah the sort of height of capitalism and getting women into really well-paid like flashy jobs um and then and she's kind of yeah real real sort of career success and then her sister Joyce who actually looks after Marlene's um daughter um who is uh there's there's kind of questions I think over her um 
this is actually something which maybe maybe we should edit out. I'm trying to think how do we frame it. Um, <laughs> just say, uh, so Joy, Joyce looks after Marlene's um, sister, and, and Marlene has kind of washed their hands of her to a certain degree. And and the play kind of really looks at their relationship and the toll that that kind of success. What does that mean? And what does that look like? And is Marlene really happy? And uh, there's lots of questions I think posed by the play um, that I think are still very very relevant. I think today, mm. and I think particularly that God, the last scene of that play is such a powerful one. And there's there's a sort of line that. Marlene kind of has about just because people are people are lazy or frightened. Do you think I should get them jobs? There's there's this kind of which I think is the kind of discourse that is you know cropping up again at the moment in in politics and society, and it's it's really interesting. But Top Girls is that that is one play, and then several other plays like um, Far Away is a sort of dystopian play in, in three acts, and it's that that came out in about two thousand, I think, and it's 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 a short play. I think it's about fifty minutes, um, and like the whole world is is at war with the weather and with each other, and it, it's this incredibly powerful, quite terrifying force of drama, and it's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, her play, a number, was about cloning. Um, Fen is a really quite difficult claustrophobic look at kind of small rural community life. Um, and but she, some of her more recent plays as well are really really cracking. Like she wrote a play called um, Escape to Lone, which was at the Royal Court a couple of years ago. Uh, which kind of looks at um, sort of four older suburban women and it's kind of looking, there's a famous line which sort of says terrible rage and it's kind of looking at this kind of inner inner turmoil versus the kind of peacefulness and tranquility of this, you know, suburban setting. And mm. everything that she does is really, really different. And that's that's what I think is really remarkable about her is that she hasn't been... I think what sometimes can happen is if one person is good at one thing, that's what they end up getting commissioned to do a lot, or that's what people want from them. So they end up kind of reproducing that kind of work. And somehow Carol Churchill has managed to do different things at every single stage of her career. And there are things like you can look at her on a page, like it's, you know, people pastiche it quite a lot in sort of student theatre. You can, you can look at what a Carol Churchill play like looks like on a page. Her way of setting out dialogue is very, uh, very specific and has been very sort of groundbreaking in in, in what, what play might look like on paper. Um, but at the same time, I think, yeah, the content of her work really, really sort of varies. And like there was a, a play, uh, Light Shining in Buckinghamshire, which is about the English Civil War, which had a revival at the National a couple of years ago. And it's like absolutely mind blowing if you've seen that versus if you've seen Top Girls or a number. It's all really different. And I think there's something that is incredible, um, incredibly sort of um, I don't know, remarkable, I think, about her sense of ambition. Do you have any sense of how she manages to do that? Like you were saying, it's kind of rare that you find someone like I'm always you know, really interested, I think, because many people are writers who tend to do something radically different each time, right? Because in a sense, you know, many writers sort of almost go back to the same thing over and over again, it might be subtly different. And there's a joy in that as well. But people who tend to be able to sort of almost jettison what's come before and do something new, that seems such a, it seems such a huge task to set yourself. And I'm always intrigued to work out what it is about that particular writer or person? I mean, do you have any sense? Is this a terribly tricky question to ask? It is really tricky. But what the one thing that I, I think is really interesting is she's very rarely, maybe pitch and told is the wrong word, but she's very rarely kind of pinned down as a, as a woman playwright. And I think okay. theatre is an industry that I think is, um, I think it is. I think it is behind kind of um, literary fiction in terms of you know it was only in was it two thousand and six or two thousand eight. I think the the first play by a woman was on the the main stage, the Olivier at the National. Like th- theatre, there is not equal representation. Um, in, well, in all sorts of ways, frankly, in theatre, but, but but in terms of gender parity, that that is not the case in theatre on main stages. Um, in in the UK, um, I can't speak for Ireland, but certainly in, certainly in kind of London main stages, that is really not the case. And so I and and what is interesting is some of the some other playwrights who've been making work around the same time as um, Carol Churchill, like, and particularly in the 80s, there's a real explosion of some really interesting sort of plays 
and say 80s and 90s plays by some really brilliant female dramatists and I don't know whether it's partly because of some of the content of their work like but I think often some of those playwrights have been you know always they've always got the moniker they're a female playwright whereas I think Carol Churchill has somehow managed to avoid that and I wonder if that is what has given her a bit more freedom perhaps over what what she's been doing but I mean also it might simply be I know that she's I believe she's she's quite kind of private she doesn't do much in the way of publicity she's you know famously never does interviews she, she kind of keeps to herself to herself and I think there and she also you know the way that a lot of playwrights make money is is, is you write for tv you write for film that's that's how you do it there's, there's not really any money in theatre and I think there is something that is very kind of purist, I think, in that Carol Churchill, she she writes for theatre and she gets on with it and she does what she wants. And then she kind of, I believe, kind of emerges with the play and then she sends it to the Royal Court, she sends it to whichever theatre. And I think there is something about her kind of focus that I think must be to do with it. But And I and I, I wonder if that is also tied into the fact that she, yeah, I don't think has been kind of put, put in a certain box, I think, in terms of, you know, being, being a woman writer. I, I wonder if that has perhaps created more opportunities or maybe she has kind of shied away from that and, and kind of used that to her advantage in a certain way. And has she been a particular inspiration, would you say, to your own playwriting? Or is there... Oh, it's interesting. That's a, that's a tricky question. I mean, I, I think... <laughs> I, I mean, I wish I was someone who was so sort of formally inventive and had such a range in sort of tone and ideas. I, I wonder, will I end up being someone who, you know, and lots of actors do it where they write, they, they have similar sort of questions or themes they're interested in and they, and they do that. And they kind of work on those a lot. And, and, and that's, I think, the same, whether it's theatre, whether it's novels, um, whichever art form it is. And I, I wonder whether I will be that. I don't know. I, I certainly don't think I have the sort of, currently I do not have the sort of, the sort of scale <laughs> that I think Cara Churchill has. Yes, all right. You've got plenty of time, though. That's the, that's the great thing about her is that you can look and see this kind of, you know, very, very long career, right? Well, I think so. And I think actually what is interesting as well is, you know, she she was writing a lot in the, in the kind of 70s. And some of those plays are they do not have the stature, perhaps, of um, mm. of sort of Top Girls or Fen or um, The Skranker or, you know, some, some of her sort of later works. And so I think there is that thing. And perhaps, you know, that's an element of uh, I think the fact that now we're in such a digitized world, everything that we do is online, all of your early writing, even if you publish something a long time ago that you think, oh, I don't love that, you know, that will be out there somewhere. So I, I yeah. think perhaps be, being in a, in a world that was uh, not everything was online, I think maybe gave gave a bit more of a starting point to kind of experiment without feeling quite so kind of watched about everything that you're doing. But I mean, God, I'd love to be like Carol Church. I don't know how she does it. It's, it's really amazing. <laughs> but I think um, I imagine as well, there is something about theatre, which I actually do think is the same to a degree um, in, uh, in, in sort of in writing literature and writing prose. But I think theatre is such a, by its nature, a collaborative art form. And mm. I, I imagine that um, if there's certain directors or certain people that she's collaborating with, that probably shapes work in certain ways as well. Or I also think you probably have people at an earlier stage to kind of bounce bounce ideas around with. Whereas I think with with kind of writing prose, you always feel the need to kind of get get it on the page first before you can sort of have those have those kind of discussions in a certain way. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, um, Kathy. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You've introduced us to lots of wonderful things. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team of Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Kathy Thomas. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Mm-hmm.